Amazing Grace is one of my favourite hymns. It's written by John Newton, who was a former slave trader. In March of 1748, while shipping a bunch of slaves from Africa to England, he met a huge storm. Coming face to face with his own mortality, he saw his depravity and sin and how he has blasphemed God. And so he turned back to God. And then he devoted his life to serve God, to fight against the whole slavery system. Eventually, through one of the young men that he has pastored, William Wilberforce, who became an MP in the British Parliament, he spent his whole life making the slave trade illegal, and he finally succeeded. And so John Newton, in his old age, wrote this hymn, I was once blind, but now I see. What a hymn. What a life. What a story. But that's just it, isn't it? It's just a story. It is a sanitized version of the reality. Don't we wish our lives of following Jesus is just like that story, right? We live in sin, we turn to Jesus, and thereafter, we make every right decision, we don't fall into sin, and we grow into Christ's likeness. It's all sunshine and hallelujah. But the reality is not so. And it wasn't so for Newton. You know, after he came to faith for a good 10 years, he continued in the slave trade. You know, he was supposed to marry his fiancée, Mary Caitlett. But, you know, he often um, fall into adultery. Eventually, he went back to England, settled down, and he gambled away all his money. So he had no choice but to go back to the slave trade. The first ship, he brought out 200 slaves, 31 of them died under him. And of course, during this time, he was growing in his faith. He was reading, he was growing. He ended up pastoring his crew but on the other hand, he was still torturing slaves. He didn't see anything wrong with that. Ten years later, because he developed seizures, could no longer sail, and so he gave up the slave trade. Otherwise, perhaps he would have continued. And then the rest of his story, we are familiar. Now we know the real story. I think we prefer the storybook story, right? <laughs> But yet, his story is hauntingly familiar because it reflects our story. We come to faith and we are filled with joy, purpose, meaning until we fall into sin. We confess and repent and say we won't sin and then we sin again. We confess and repent and say we won't sin and then we sin again. And we wonder, is it possible to grow in holiness? And so that is the question I would like us to consider today. How do we grow in holiness? And so in the book of Romans, it gives us the gist of the gospel. It reveals God's righteousness. And the only way to achieve God's righteousness is through Jesus. Hence, at the introduction, it gives us a nutshell of the rest of the book. It says, Jesus is the Messiah. We have to believe in Him. Why? And He, he unpacks this. Firstly, to say that because all of us are sinners, sin is defined that we cannot hit the perfect standards of God. Nobody's perfect and hence, the Bible says, all have sinned. It's not merely doing bad things. I think by now we should have gotten rid of the idea when we talk about sin. It's not just about doing bad things. 
It's, it's not hitting God's perfect standards and it's manifested by our self-centeredness. When we turn away from God and we turn away from others. Right? So the ultimate sin is not believing in God, our Creator. And because of that, Romans 3 onwards, it says God provides this righteousness through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus, who was sinless. Because He was sinless, by His death, He takes God's, God's wrath. When we believe in Him, His righteousness is credited to us. We are declared righteous. We don't become righteous. We don't become good people. We are declared righteous. Now, does it mean that then we can continue to live a life of sin? No. That is why Romans 5-8, to 8, it begins to talk about holiness, growing. The word sanctification means growing in holiness, being set apart. First, by understanding what it means to be declared righteous. So last week, Romans 5, you saw, declared righteous doesn't just mean go now, your penalty of sin has been paid, you're free. It, more, more so, it means come. Come because now you're restored, you're reconciled, you have an intimate relationship with God. And because of that, even in the midst of trials, we can worship God. Whatever trials we may be facing, God is not a sadist or a party pooper. If there's any other way, God would have it. He would have let us go that way, but there's no other way. When we understand, friends, when we understand the depravity of our sins, of our hearts, then we understand why suffering is a necessity. Necessity for us to realize the idols of our hearts the grip of the world on us and our deep-seated love for the world. And then in Romans 6, it talks about victory over sin. Romans 7, freedom in Christ. Romans 8, the love of God assured, assurance of God's love. So today, Romans 6, we'll see victory over sin. Two things that we need to know and to yield. Romans 6, 1 to 23. How do we grow in holiness? To know and to yield. First, what do we need to know? That we are dead to sin but alive in Christ. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. May ginoto. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's a forceful reply. No. No to what? Now he's saying that, okay, if we sin and God forgives us, grace is so great. Wow, can I continue to sin and God will forgive? Now friends, if we have that thought, no, clearly, we are not a child of God. You know, as a child of God, we won't want to say, ah, because God will forgive, I can just sin. No. Yes, we do fall into sin, but there's shame. We wrestle with it. On the other hand, if we say that, okay, now that there's no more judgment, I can sin, it means that in the first place, when we obey God, it's not really out of love or relationship with Him, Right? It is out of fear, fear of judgment. And Paul's reply is clear. It says, no. What do we need to know first? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into His death? What does it mean to be baptized? Firstly, the word, the literal meaning means to be immersed into the water. Alright? The figurative meaning means to identify. Means we identify with Christ, we identify with His death. For example, Paul says about the Israelites coming out uh, of Israel and uh, of Egypt and going through the Red Sea, that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now, did they go through water? 
immersed in water? No, right? They just walk through it. So he's saying that they're identified with Moses. Just like the church today. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether you're Jews, Greeks, uh, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. We were baptized by the spirit, not referring to water baptism. In the book of Acts, we see this happening a few times. Some, they accept Jesus, the Spirit baptized them. Some, they are baptized and then they accept. Okay, but those are just historical records of how the Holy Spirit came. Okay, they are not normative. What's normative is in the epistles here. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the moment you're born again, you're baptized into the Spirit to join this thing called the, the body called the church. And there's a difference between water baptism and spirit baptism. He says, uh, John the Baptist, when people ask him, says, I did not recognize the Messiah, but God who sent me to baptize in water said this to me. He upon whom you see the Spirit descending, remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. See, how do you know who is the Messiah? Says, God told me when I baptize that person in water, the Holy Spirit comes on him, that is the Messiah. And then he says, it's Jesus. Why is it the Messiah baptizes in the Holy Spirit? See, in this New Testament time, it's called the era of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes into us and indwells in us permanently. Okay? It doesn't leave us. So, Jesus or the Messiah is the mediator of the new covenant. Hence, He comes in the power of the Spirit. So, He's identified with the Holy Spirit. That is why when Jesus performed some miracles and the Pharisees said, look, uh, it's Satan who, who is he's using the power of Satan. And Jesus said, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit and because of that, there's no forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean you curse at the Holy Spirit and you're not forgiven. Because the Messiah comes in this power and you're saying that it's not the Holy Spirit but Satan, you are not recognizing Jesus as Messiah. Hence, there's no forgiveness. So coming back to this, he says Jesus is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Now, as Baptists, we, when we do water baptism, we say that it's an ref, uh, ref, outer reflection of inner reality, right? So we believe that immersion is the best form because you go into water, you are buried and uh, dead and buried, and when you come out, you resurrect with Christ. So it's the best form of um, showing this reality, okay? You know, when I came here, I had to get immersed also, right? Yeah, because I, previously my baptism wasn't. But more so, I think, when John the Baptist tells us that this idea of a baptism is identifying. So when Paul here says, okay, we identify with Jesus in his death, so what? He continues, because we have identified into his death, um, we now also identify into his life. You want to help me, Sheila? I press, you press. Yes. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. No. How do we grow in holiness? Know that we are dead to sin, but now we walk in the newness of life. And you say, is that true? Why is it that I struggle? Alistair Brown shares this story. He says, there's a big oak tree in his front yard. And there's this vine that goes around it that squeezes the life out of it. So the tree wasn't very healthy. So the gardener took a, a sharp knife and went, cut, cut it from up to down, right? Cut it. And then he walked away. Now at first glance, the vine seems to be still around that tree, right? 
but actually it's already dead. With time, when it, the vine dries up, it begins to fall off. And then the tree gets healthy. And that is why when we come to faith, we still struggle, but you know, the sin power of sin has been broken. Now let me explain this. When Jesus died and resurrected and we believe in Him, remember the penalty of sin has been paid. All your sins that you did in the past, now and future, all paid for. Okay? The power of sin has been broken. We can choose not to. Like the vine, it takes time to grow and it falls down. But the presence of sin will always be with us. We live in the flesh, we will always wrestle with it. Alright? That's why when I was led to Christ, the person told me, you know, you read the Bible, you follow, you pray, and you see your life change. And true enough, some things I change is easier, some things takes a longer time, some things I think I'm going to struggle with for, for, in my lifetime. But as we walk in Christ, we know this, we believe this, you realize the power of sin has fallen off and we grow in holiness. Not only do we walk in the newness of life, he says, for if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Remember sin, we are defined not do bad things, right? Ultimately, sin is turning away from God. Here is death. Death is not just you die. Just like eternal life. Eternal life is not after you die, then it happens. It happens now. The quality of life changes. So, he says we are united with Him in death. So, in His resurrection. Therefore, we need to know, the second thing we need to know, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin may be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Paul says we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. Now, we don't like this idea of slaves. Who say, I'm not a slave? The idea of slavery isn't like John Newton's time, the 18th century African uh, slavery. In the Roman kingdom, you know, more than half the people are slaves. Their slavery uh, is that you can sell yourself into slavery. Let's say I owe you money. I sell myself to you for the next three years. And in the next three years, whatever you want me to do, I will do. But after three years, I'm free. So Paul is saying, now you're free. You don't have to do that anymore. Why do we struggle with sin? It's because we are trying to deal with sinful behaviours. Don't do this, don't do that. Now, Paul is not dealing with that. He's dealing with the inner identity. You're no longer a slave. If we just deal with the externals, it's like, you want to tailor your pants, right? You see, my pants keep falling off. I bring to a tailor, I say, okay, uh, can you widen this part? Next day, I go, can you lengthen this part? The third day, I go to him, can you shorten this part? Now, what happens? Your whole pants doesn't look like a pants, right? Here, long, there, long. The way to do it is to just go to the tailor and let him do everything at one go. Likewise, Paul is saying, you know, you don't deal with this sin and that sin and this sin. You deal with your identity. He says, you're no longer slaves to sin. You're freed to walk with God. And so we know that we are, we are dead to sin. We are no longer slaves. And he continues... Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with Him, knowing, see, the third time, knowing. He kept emphasizing knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead is no longer, again, death no longer is master over Him. By His resurrection, Jesus proved He's the Messiah, proved death no longer is master over Him, and hence we too have this life. For the death 
that he died. He died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Three times he uses the verb know, to know, and they are descriptive what Jesus has done for us. But right here onwards in Romans 6, he begins to use imperatives, meaning something you can respond to. Use consider, logis oh my, which is more than just knowing. It's counting, it's reckoning, it's being intentional about believing. So you know you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's not just head knowledge. It's trusting. Intentionally finding time to remember, to count. Count what? That now you're alive in Christ. You're no longer like your past. Hence, you can live a new life. You know, C.S. Lewis shares about God and this whole sanctification process. He says, you know, imagine you're building. God comes to rebuild it. First, He clears out the trash and the garbage and you're comfortable with it. And then He begins knocking down the wall and then digging up your yard and you're just bewildered. He says, this is so painful. Why? It doesn't make sense. And it says, you thought you were going to be made into a decent, decent little cottage, but he was building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. This whole process, you say you struggle, is painful. Well, because God is doing something beyond our imagination. You think he's just going to correct this and correct that, but he's going to give you a new self. So not only do we know, we have to yield Know that you're dead to sin, alive to Christ, but yield. You're freed as slaves, but yielded to Christ. So now he uses a series of imperatives that are underlined. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. How do I not let sin reign in my life? It says the word lust. Now what do you think of when you think of lust? Bad things. Sexual sin, steal money, kill people, desires, lust, Right? But just as sin is not just doing bad things, lust is not just that. Lust, epithymia. Thymia means desire, good desires that God gives. Epi means over. Means over desire becomes lust. Which means this lust are the good things that God gave us, but we pursue them overly. Epi desires. Your children, your money, your career, your name, your, the loved ones, they become epi desires. How do you know that they have become epi desires, inordinate desires? First, anger. When something you want and you cannot get, you get angry. Or someone takes it away, you get angry. Not just angry, you know, you lose it. Your words and your actions, you regret, you cannot control. Now that is your epi desire. When something good is threatened, we feel fear and anxiety. We are worried. But we come to a point where we are paralyzed. That is your epi desire. My work performance, how would others, others think of me? My love relationship, they become epi desires. When we lose something good, we are sad, we grieve, and it takes time for us to recover. But we, become, we feel like there's no more meaning to life. You know, what, what am I living for? That is your epi desire. Your loved ones, your children's future. And so we ask, what are your epi desires? They are not just something good that you pursue overly, but you make it the ultimate. Paul is saying, you know, there is a spiritual force behind this. 
your epi desires. They are not just desires because he continues, do not. At first he says, don't let sin reign, right? Don't pursue your lust. Do not go on presenting. No, those underlie are imperative verbs, okay? Imperatives, meaning you have to respond a command. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, from your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The top part, it says, know that you're dead to sin alive in Christ. The second half of Romans 6, it says, because of that, respond. To present or not to present is to worship. Don't go worshipping those lustful things. Against lustful things, don't just think about bad things. The good things that we make ultimate, that becomes the desire that we must have, that is what you worship. That is why our first commandment, right? What is the first commandment? You shall not worship any other gods. You shall not have idols. And Martin Luther, in his commentary on this, he says, you never, if you don't sin the first commandment, the idolatry one, he says, you never do anything else wrong in your life. You do not get over-angry or over-afraid or over-despondent. You do not lie, do not kill, do not steal. You don't do anything else wrong unless first you're committing this sin. Epi-desire is the outflow of a heart of idolatry. What is your epi-desire? What are the good things that God has given us but we have made the ultimate? That, my friends, that that causes you to lose sleep, that we are fearful over, that we are paralyzed, that we are angry, that is your idol. Your sense of security, your job, your children's future, your investments. What are we worshipping? Paul is saying, that is what you are worshipping, you know, that as a spiritual force behind it. That is why Jesus in Matthew 6 says what? He says, don't worship, you cannot worship God and mammon, right? Mammon is money. He doesn't say money. He says the God behind money. Those happy desires we have has a spiritual force behind it. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but grace? May it never be. The second time he repeats this, the first half, second half. Now we have to yield, we have to respond. Do, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves or obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? Just as earlier I said, you know, we all worship something, even if you're not religious. It's only a question of what? Whether is it God or yourself? God or the things that we have made like God. Here is saying that I mean, you are a slave, whether you realize it or not. You are either a slave to God, obedience, righteousness, or a slave to self and sin. Again, get rid, get rid of the idea that sin is doing bad things. Sin is not recognizing God as God. Sin is putting other things above God, and that controls us. Since you are either this or that, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you are committed. And having been freed from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. You are not like that. You are slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, you are in this vicious cycle. You pursue something you desire, 
it doesn't fulfill you, you feel empty, you continue to pursue, and it keeps turning you away from God. So now, what do you do? Present, again, imperative, present yourself as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you are slaves to sin, you're free with regard to righteousness. When we choose to worship God, present ourselves to God, it is not just legalistically, it is not just all these external behaviours or choices. It is from a heart of obedience and love. Just like the new city today we said, how do you glorify God? It's not just by obeying, right? Firstly, it's by loving. If we just obey His commands and law, if we think God's law is just to restrict us, you know, all these things cannot do, that doesn't glorify God. But we've realised that the law of God is to give us boundaries. Boundaries, and within these boundaries, we are free to do whatever we want and experience life, life joy that God gives us. God gave us the law because He loves us. We respond out of love. Then, that kind of obedience glorifies God. Just like what Romans is saying, present yourself, worship, present yourself to God out of love. Out of because you know God loves you. So the rest of Romans 6, he begins to say, when you respond in this way, you understand it is not out of obedience or duty. It's not out of duty. It is not out of, you know, by, by, because you have no choice, but out of love. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which are, you are now ashamed? All those things in the past you pursued, did they fulfill you? No. For the outcome of those things is death. Remember, eternal life, when does it begin? Now, the moment we trust Christ, not after we die. Therefore, death is not saying after you die. It is the here and now. We are living a life of death when we turn away from God. We are living a life of slavery to self and sin. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, which is holiness. The outcome, eternal life. Eternal life that begins now. So he says, he's saying that when we yield ourselves to Christ, right, it leads to a life of holiness, sanctification. Now, do you want to be holy? Some people say yes. A lot of people actually say, I don't want. Holiness is very scary, right? This one cannot do, that one cannot do. So restrictive. Okay. Then I ask the person, well, do you want love? Yeah. You want joy? Yeah. You want peace? Yeah. You know, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the result of holiness. So we don't want holiness, but we want all the results. You, you cannot have your cake and eat it, right? So here it's saying, well, when we lead that life, that's, that's when you, feel, you experience life that is truly life. Because we are no longer enslaved ourselves. Forrest Becker, you know, he won the Wimbledon, and when he won it, he was the youngest person to win it. This was in the 80s. He was only 17. But, you know, he was struggling. He was not happy. In fact, he was thinking of killing himself. Years later, he was, during an interview, he says, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of the movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. Do you find it ironical? What, why is he a puppet on a string? Why is he controlled? In other words, why was he enslaved? Enslaved to what? We think when we turn away from religion and God, we are free. 
friends, we are never free. We are never free from the expectations of this world. We are never free from the desires of our hearts. We are never free from our sin nature. You want to be free? Then we go back to our Creator and understand what we were created for. Live within the bounds He has created for us because His desire is to bless us. Try transgressing those laws of God and see where your life ends up. That is why the friend I shared in the pastor's voice, he texted me. That was after he came to faith. You know, how he felt that suddenly, finally, he felt there's purpose to life. Years after that, I asked him about why he converted. And that's what he told me. He said, actually, he felt, uh, he, he's, he's, I mean, that was in America at that time. He said he felt like his life had no purpose. He had everything he wanted, but he didn't feel his life was worth living. In fact, he thought about ending his life, but he decided to walk into church to give himself a last chance. When we understand why you were created for, that gives you the sense of fulfillment and peace that we're looking for. That is life, that is truly life. That is eternal life that begins on this side of eternity. Conversely, otherwise we are leading a life of death on this side of eternity. And he brings it back, he brings the whole argument back to this verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, I find it very interesting. This whole section, Romans 5 to 8, that talks about holiness, pursuing a life of holiness saying that it's something we can do. But you know, every chapter, he ends his argument with the gospel. Every chapter, he brings us back to the gospel and says, hey, you cannot do it just by your pure willpower. Our hearts must be gripped by the gospel. The free gift of God, which is, you explained, which is Christ dying and resurrecting for us. Remember I shared with you the miracle of Dunkirk before this story. Dunkirk is a French town, a coastal town. And it, in, during World War II, 250,000 of Allied soldiers were trapped there. They were trying to pull out of the mainland Europe. The German soldiers were advancing. They were trapped with this, the English Channel behind them. And so if the Germans advanced, you know, all of them would be wiped out. That's the end of World War II. No need to fight. Okay, so England was trying to send out ships to rescue them, but they didn't have enough warships. So Churchill, who was the Prime Minister at the time, called out, gave a, a challenge or asked the whole nation to, he says, if you have a ship, a vessel that is seaworthy, go to Dunkirk and rescue those people. And he asked that everyone get on their knees to pray, to pray for a miracle. The next day, a miracle happened. 8,000 ships, big and small, appeared at Dunkirk. And because the weather was not good, Hitler didn't want to send his air force. And because there was no air support, the infantry stood still and gave them time, gave the Allied soldiers time to evacuate. That was the miracle of Dunkirk. They were rescued, but after that, the plane started to fly, and they started to try to bomb the ships on the English Channel. There was a cruise packed with soldiers that was hit, and it began to sink. So people were jumping off, right? But there were 200-plus soldiers trapped in one of the front uh, cargo hall. They couldn't get out, and they were screaming. So the survivors later testified. They were in the water. They say they heard the screams. It was so terrible. And then they saw the Navy chaplain swimming back to that part of the ship. He hauled himself up onto the hole and looked down uh, into the cargo hall. And after a moment, he dropped himself inside. Now, he knew that when he goes in, there's no way out, okay? 
And survivors would testify that a few minutes later, instead of screams, they heard hymns being sung until it rolled over and they continued singing until it went to the bottom of the ocean. And so that many of the survivors testified that it's because of those songs that they heard, the hymns that gave them the courage to survive till another ship picked them up. This is a story of what Jesus has done for us. That one man gave his life so that more could gain life. Friends, that is what the gospel is. That is what Jesus has done. In his death, he sees your sin that you, you have committed, that you are committing, and you will commit, and yet he says he takes it upon himself. That is why the gospel is free gift. That is how we can be accepted and reconciled by God, not because you become righteous or become moral or become a good person, but because of Jesus. And because of that, we say we are to yield to Christ. The whole Romans 6 is a bit tough, I understand. Romans is not easy. So, so every week I try to explain. It's essentially saying that sin has resulted in death, but we are freed. We are no longer slaves. We can live for Christ. Week after week, we say the same thing. We go back to the gospel of what Jesus has done. And so not only do we know that you're dead to sin alive to Christ, we now yield we are no longer slaves. You yield to your master, Jesus. You yield to the Lordship of Christ. So my challenge in this year, 2024, what areas can we yield and surrender to the Lordship? We just gave our first fruit offering. You know, first, I always look forward to first fruit because it's my act of faith. For the rest of the year, it may be a hard year, a good year, I don't know, but I trust God to give because whatever I have belongs to Him. And for me, of course, it's harder, right? Because... You know, you, you, you know that you don't make that much. You won't get a lot of bonus. But it's an act of faith. And not just give, but you use, you don't let money control you. you. You use it to bless others. And then you see how that person changes, how God blesses that person. You know, it encourages yourself. It encourages me. We submit to the Lord, whether it's a tough year or a good year, you don't hoard it just for yourself. We submit our children to the Lord. Their future, their studies, you know, all the challenges they face, all our worries, we submit to the Lordship of Christ. Submit our future, our jobs, on the altar to the Lord. Acknowledge that He is Lord. So we are not worried about what our boss would think, you know, how these other people look at my work, as long as you try our best and we acknowledge that God is Lord over this. Romans chapter 6 tells us, we can grow in holiness. First, know that you have been freed from sin. You're dead, alive to Christ. So we yield. Whether it's through your own quiet times, reading God's Word, fellowship time, worship time, ways we come up to yield ourselves, to remind ourselves of this truth, we yield to the Lordship of Christ. You know, um, John Newton, it took him 10 years after his conversion to stop the slave trade and he did it because he couldn't. So he became an immigration officer, began to study theology at the sideline and eventually he became a pastor. He didn't feel that he was worthy but he felt called. And his church members have this complaint about him, that he's too gentle with sinners. He's too gentle. So they complain but maybe it's because, you know, 
He feels that the, really the only way to change hearts is by the grace of the gospel, not by judgment. Maybe it's because of his own past. And as he grew older, he became blind. But the more he couldn't see with his physical sight, the more he saw with his spiritual eyes. And he saw his own nature of depravity. So he wrote, Seeing ourselves clearly, our curse over a lifetime of pursuing God. Our vision is seldom restored in a single burst, but with countless rays streaming into our darkened eyes over many years and always in the midst of amazing grace. To grow in holiness is to see ourselves clearly. The more clearly we see ourselves, the more realize, we realize we need to turn to God and His grace. My memory is nearly gone. I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of our faith. You know, I wrote this sermon months ago, and uh, this Thursday when I took it out and prepared, when I got to this point, I just broke down. Maybe because of what has happened in the last few months, you know, I'm, I'm just full of emotions. You just poke me, only the tears come out. And sometimes over random things, I'll tear up, okay? But the day I was just tearing over this, I was saying, God, I'm just not holy enough. I don't love you enough. I don't believe you enough. I don't, I'm not content enough. And I was, as I was going on, I heard God say to me, you know, that may be true, but I am enough. You may be a great sinner, but I am a great saviour. And sitting right there, I just broke out in a song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Let us raise our feet. Let us stand up as the worship team lead us in this song. And as we sing the song, let us bring ourselves before the Lord in this Chinese New Year to yield to the Lordship of Christ, whatever areas that we may be holding tight, to realize His amazing grace that I may be a great sinner, but Christ is a great Saviour.